into the world of Fully Scored, where melodies entwine, a podcast that unveils Salvation Army's music divine. Episode 45, a chapter anew, with a warm welcome, we bid to all of you. Embrace the history, the message and the lore, as we delve into tunes like never before. Today we're honoured to have as a guest, Jonathan Evans, the trombone virtuoso at best. From the international staff band he shines bright, in an interview he shares his musical insight. Then a special focus on Eric Lysden's grand creation, as Tawny Hansen, a master, narrates its elation. Abandoned and alone and stranded at sea. Is that Ian Parkhouse of the ISB? To choose one album, that is his chore, before we rescue him and bring him ashore. And wait, there's more in store you'll see. A band mastermind hot seat, a challenge for our nominee. Jonathan in the spotlight, under pressure he'll strive to improve his musical prowess and possibly thrive. With musical insights that resonate and tales to share, Jonathan's presence now fills the air. So leaning closer, embrace the sound, for Fully Scored's grand interview is about to astound. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored once again. Frequent listeners will have heard your terrific analysis of Dean Goffin's Light of the World, and we're delighted to have you join us once again, but this time for an interview to get to know you a little bit better. So, where should we start, I think, from your upbringing? Now, like many of our guests, you're the child of officer parents. Uh, so the simple question, where did you grow up, isn't always as simple as it seems. But uh, where did you grow up? Well, thank you for having me on, Matthew. It's, it's a joy to be back on the podcast. I was born in Blackpool, into the Blackpool Team Ministry of Blackpool Citadel and Blackpool South, which I don't remember at all. Um, and then we, we moved to various places, East Anglia, um, South London. But I really, I suppose grew up in Wrexham. We spent 10 years, which is unusual uh, to spend that long uh, as officers' children in, in one place, from 8 till 18 till I went to university. So my formative years and my, my greatest influences come from my time at Wrexham and at the, at the core at Wrexham too. And who would you say were some of your earliest influences, both spiritually and musically? Was that the time that you started to learn music? Yeah, well, I mean, my parents were, were my biggest uh, influences and certainly spiritually, uh, that would be true. My mum is a really fine musician, uh, a great pianist. My dad is the most enthusiastic man I've ever met in my life. Um, and so he was uh, very supportive of all of our, our ventures, both my brother and I. At Wrexham, I was really fortunate to fall under the influence of, of several several people within the core. The, the retired bandmaster, John Duckett, was a great supporter of mine. He took me out of the YP band into the senior band, sat next to me on second trombone when I was 11 or 12. His son, Chris, was the bandmaster and was really encouraging of all the young people. Uh, we had a, a lot of teenagers in the band, so it was a really exciting band to be a part of. Um, a, a gentleman called Eric Williams was the YP band leader. That's Stephen Williams from the staff band, his father, because Stephen grew up at Wrexham as well. And Eric was a, was a really important influence on me, gave me some, some of my first conducting opportunities with a YP band where I was his assistant. But I suppose the biggest influence on me at that time would have been Colin Fisher, who was the songster leader. He was also the head of music at my high school. 
and I played in, in his in his high school band and he taught me he, he put me onto trombone gave me additional additional lessons on top of what I was getting in school and um, was was a great role model really um, in, in school he was a great role model and everyone knew he was a Christian everyone knew he was a salvationist actually it made being a salvationist quite straightforward at school because Mr Fisher was a salvationist and Mr Fisher was a was a great guy who gave great opportunities to to children who mostly were growing up on a, on a council estate in Wrexham but we got to go to all sorts of national festivals with with his wind band but also then when I got to about the age of 16 Colin said he couldn't really teach me anymore because of the level I'd got to on the trombone by that point and he wasn't a trombone player and he secured me some lessons at Chet's up in Manchester uh, with a teacher called Phil Goodwin who was a terrific teacher all of the way through until I left university. Uh, what I didn't know until later was that Colin didn't feel his officers at his corps should have to, to pay for those lessons and so he paid for those lessons and he regularly was driving me up for my lessons on a Saturday as well um, but I didn't know until some years later that he had paid for all of those lessons as well uh, which is a remarkable gift really um, an investment in me and something I'm very aware of in thinking about working with young people now uh, that I had people like Colin who who spoke up for me and, and spoke into my life he was a great spiritual influence a great musical influence and I owe so much to him whether that's the things I've done musically or in education or the fact that I've met my wife at university all of that really comes back to um, Colin Fisher so he would be the person I'd pick out as beyond my parents, the most important influence on my life at that time. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. What a fantastic story there of you developing. Now, just to pick up on something you mentioned, you said that Mr Fisher put you on trombone. Was there a little secret uh, dabble in valved instruments before the trombone then? There was. It was short-lived. I, from about eight until, well, probably to about ten, so it must be about two years, I did try and play the cornet and... I don't think any recordings exist, uh, but it's pretty awful. I do teach a little bit of trumpet at school uh, from time to time now and occasionally at the army, and it's still pretty ugly. So I'm glad that Colin saw the sense and moved me on to trombone. <laughs> There's a joke somewhere there about all trombonists are failed valve players, isn't there? But something <laughs> like that. <laughs> we won't go down those lines, though. So thank you for sharing that story. Another thing that you mentioned there is that you went to study music at university, and I believe you studied at Manchester University. Did you always know from that sort of young age and those influences you had that you wanted to study music? Yeah, I, probably. Um, I really enjoyed all of my, my A-levels that I did. I did uh, history and politics and music, uh, and I did, I did well in all of them. I, interesting, I think I probably did least well in music. Um, but... I managed to kind of combine it all by doing academic music, which is what I kind of got my heart set on. So I, I did performance and I did, I did trombone and, and latterly some conducting, uh, but I was able to combine it with my love of history and politics. And I did a lot of um, Soviet music actually, and, and a lot of, of study of the musicology around people like Shostakovich and being a musician in Stalin's regime. So those were my passions and I was fortunate to combine them and to do them at Manchester, which is really the place to be outside of Russia to do Shostakovich and, and the people who were there who you can study with. So it worked out quite well that it combined all of my interests um, and I got to keep doing performance, which I didn't want to lose as well. So again, you mentioned there that you had a little dabble with conducting, and I'm sure it was much more than a little dabble, uh, knowing you as I do. What was it about the white baton that drew you in? 
probably not being a, a, a particularly good trombonist, to be honest. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's less hard work, I guess, um, in terms of the daily discipline. Uh, no, I, in all seriousness, I, it always fascinated me. There are some great pictures of me of two or three years old when we were at Blackpool. I think the bandmaster was Ken Ward, and I used to impersonate him at the back of the hall and stand up on a little box, which was a podium, and have a little bat on. Uh, and it was a bit of an obsession, I think, uh, growing up. Um, so I, w- I went to Manchester University partly for the uh, opportunity to work with a guy called Professor David Fanning, who was the head of Shostakovich studies and kind of a, a world expert on Shostakovich, and partly because I knew that there was this pathway that you could get into to do conducting after the first year. So I did trombone for a year and then I auditioned for this pathway uh, and got onto it. And then I studied with Mark Heron, who's the head of conducting at the Royal Northern College of Music, um, and got to conduct the symphony orchestra. I got. I was the given the MD role for the wind orchestra. I was able to set up a brass band because there hadn't been one there previously, um, and so I was able to, if you like, learn the ropes and make all my mistakes amongst friends, but also in quite a competitive and uh, I suppose pressurised environment as well. Um, you don't want to look a fool in front of a hundred of your peers. Um, and the, the tuition was excellent. The conducting opportunities at Manchester University are remarkable, really, for an undergraduate programme. And uh, I was able to to learn a great deal and, and, and enjoyed it greatly. And I believe that you were actually offered a place at the Royal College of Northern Music to study <laughs> conducting as a master's. Yeah, I was. And, and I decided to, to take my life in a different direction. But I that's a very prestigious course. So I was very fortunate to, to, to gain a place on it. And... Um, but yeah, it, it, conducting still plays plays a role in my life. But um, those those formative experiences, getting to cu- conduct Mahler symphonies and Shostakovich symphonies, um, were really incredible opportunities. And learning about string instruments and and uh, getting some instruction on on how to get the best out of string instruments, which I knew very little about before university, um, was just a fantastic experience. And during that time, I know that you worked a lot with uh, local brass bands and some very high-name brass bands that you conducted. How much did you have to adapt your conducting techniques from conducting brass bands to, and rehearsal techniques to working with orchestras? Well, I think rehearsal techniques were fairly similar, except for there's more planning involved for an orchestra because you've got more people and, you know, if the trombones are only playing in the fourth movement, they don't want to be turning up and you're saying, I'm doing movement three, sorry, you're going to have to sit there. You have to plan your time better uh, and be be fairer to people with their time when you're doing an orchestra. Um, in terms of physically conducting, uh, I mean, Mark, who, who taught me, always talked about... Um, you need to try and talk as little as possible. Yes, you can explain the music and you can set the parameters for people and it's important that you explain it and it's not some kind of secret and interpretation of a piece that people are aware of it. But actually, once you're in the rehearsal, if you can't show it, then you're not doing a good enough job. And if someone needs to stop and say, I can't tell how loud you want that or the the tempo's unclear from your upbeat, it's it's not good enough. So um, the, the first thing was to make sure I was not talking much and I was conducting more and, and being really clear with my gestures and my body language and my expression. And then that is nuance between the different families. So with, with brass and wind, generally, because of the breathing element, you've got to be a lot clearer. Though I sometimes think we, we go too far in the brass band world with how clear some conductors want to be, um, which actually just doesn't help. 
Uh, and then with strings, you need to know when to get out the way. It's a far more physical gesture that you're offering. And if you're really precise, actually, what you're going to get back from them is, is not what you want to hear. So um, you need to know what, what you want to hear and how your body's going to communicate that. And that, does, that changes from family to family in the orchestra, definitely. Thank you for that really fascinating insight. I could listen to you talk about that all day. Really oh, I'm a total geek stuff. on it. We could talk for we could have a four-hour podcast, but we won't do that. So you are now a primary school teacher, and do you take any of those techniques that you learn in conducting into the classroom? <laughs> it's a good question. What is a conductor, or what is what is a teacher? You're, you're facilitating. You're trying to get the best out of everyone in the room, um, and whether that's uh, whether you're working with children or a lot of my role now is in, in leading adults as well and it's uh, you're just trying to get the best out of people and um, yes there are there are some similarities I think um, yeah so primary school was a direction that I went in I, I did a little bit of after after university a little bit of freelancing and a little bit of uh, working part-time as a special needs teaching assistant for a year as, as kind of a steady steady money uh, that was needed and I really enjoyed it and so I decided uh, when I was I was offered the conducting masters I was also offered a, a paid PGCE uh, teaching certificate and I decided to go down that route and I've been doing that for about nine years or so now um, I'm a year six teacher about three and a half days a week I'm a head of key stage two at a primary school head of head of maths at the school used to be head of music but that's outside of my responsibilities nowadays and then I do some regional work in the northwest um, doing something called uh, maths mastery which I won't go into now but it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment in education but I support other schools on their maths and how to make it better. Maths mastery Ooh, sounds cool so just to go back a little bit, perhaps, while we're st- talking about your musical upbringing. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so do correct me if I'm wrong. But I would guess that a key part of your musical upbringing would have been the Territorial Youth Band, which you were part of for many years, both as student and staff. What impact, if any, did that have on you, becoming a Salvationist musician as you are now? Territorial Youth Band is just a wonderful wonderful group it's a wonderful idea and it's been a very significant part of my life um most of my closest friends i met through territorial youth band or maybe through territorial music school but particularly territorial youth band um, it gives young people an opportunity to play really high quality salvation army music to get high quality musical training high quality uh, spiritual nurturing too uh, and to form great friendships that support you through life um it's just a fantastic week. Uh, I loved being a student there, uh, getting to play pieces like Isaiah 40, where I was 15 or, or 16, and I didn't know what was going on. But by the end of the week, it's remarkable how the students progress and are able to, to play that music. And then I loved even more being being a, a staff member. I did it for about 10 years. Fortunately, I haven't been able to go the last couple because of school half terms not, not matching up. But again, just a wonderful privilege to work with young people and to work with a fantastic staff team. And I would in- still encourage people to send their young people to Territory Youth Band because it's been probably the most significant week of my life annually, every year as a student and as a staff member, and has made a, a great impact on my spiritual growth and on my musicianship as well. So if you've got young people who are in the age bracket, for goodness sake, send them, pay the fees. Whatever you need to do, get people in your core going. And if people in, in your area don't know about it, tell them because it is a life-changing week. And, uh, yeah, 
get them there. Absolutely, 100% agreed there. And perhaps that leads quite nicely on to my next question. Uh, Many listeners, I'm sure, will know that you're now the principal trombone of the International Staff Band, uh, and you've been part of the band for quite a few years now, actually. When did you first join the band? January 2014, so it's coming up to 10 years quite soon, which is crazy. Wow. Um, Yeah, and it's a wonderful privilege to be in the band and a fantastic group of people. And have you got any highlights so far of those nine and three quarter years that you've been in the band? So, so many. I think, first of all, I would have to mention um, sitting next to Andrew Justice uh, would be a major highlight and actually learning from him 35 years, I think, as principal trombone of the ISB, a legend in the history of Salvation Army trombone playing um, and what an influence he's been on, on many people and certainly on me both as a, as a player, as a musician and as a Christian. Um, that has been a, a major highlight and uh, he's a, a very tough uh, slash impossible act to follow. Um, other highlights, the Boundless Congress was wonderful, seeing the army world come together. That was, that was a great week back in 2015. Um, I've really enjoyed some of the recording projects we've done. The, the last album we've, we've just released, actually, Manuscripts 2. Manuscripts 1 uh, would be my favourite album. Um, of all time so to be part of Manuscripts 2 is very special and there's some great tracks on there listening to that since it's come out in the last couple of weeks uh, so I really enjoyed doing doing that and uh, I think everyone who's who's in the ISB who's been on Fully Scored has probably mentioned about Sunday morning ministry uh, and I don't want it to sound sound corny or twee but it's very true that I really look forward to those Sunday mornings with the band it's different to when you're at core, certainly some of the responsibilities that you have at your core you, you don't have. And whilst you have the responsibility of playing in the band, uh, I find a great freedom on those Sunday mornings and be able to sit back and, even though I'm in the band, be ministered to by the band as well and hopefully bless the people who, who gather um, on those Sunday mornings and just playing great devotional music, old and new, with a band that can play in the way that the ISB does is such a blessing and a privilege and something I really don't take for granted. And thank you for sharing those. Although, isn't there a story about some gravy and a white (laughs) shirt that you haven't shared yet? Yeah, well, that was my first trip abroad with the band. I was very young. I was was 21 and we went to Germany and under poor influences. Actually, uh, Deputy Bandmaster Derek Kane uh, was encouraging it greatly, but there was... There was some gravy left over or some meat left over. I'm, I'm vegetarian now, so I wouldn't have got involved. But at the time, I, I did enjoy my meat. And it was suggested that the students in the band uh, might like to finish off this meat. I thought it'd be quite funny to pick up the trough that the meat was in and pretend to pour it over myself. At that point, Stephen Kane, who was there with the German staff band, knocked it over me. And I was fairly convinced that I was going to be sacked from the band before we got back to Heathrow and my two-month stint would be all that it was. So I'm very grateful that um, that indiscretion was overlooked. And Gravy Gate, <laughs> as Chris House likes to call it, has not um, blemished my record too much. I've never, never done anything so silly again. There we go. Fantastic. So bringing things a little bit more up to date, uh, you're part of the Sail Corps just on the outskirts of Manchester, where you currently hold the role of bandmaster. And I know that you're really, really passionate about it being innovative with a band to best share the gospel in the community of Sail and further afield. What is your vision 
for the band? Wow, what a great question. I'm really passionate about it. And I love, I love brass bands. I love particularly Salvage Army brass bands. And I know that there is, there is generally a feeling that, that Salvage Army bands are on the wane. And I understand that. And numerically, we would have to say in our, in our own territory, that's true. I don't think I'll need to convince listeners to this podcast about uh, the worth of a Salvation Army band and the relevance of a Salvation Army band when done, done well, whether we're talking about inclusion, whether we're talking about discipleship, whether we're talking about mission. Those of us who are, who are doing Salvation Army and doing Salvation Army bands really need to get our head out the doldrums, I think, a little bit, because there are so many opportunities. And I'm seeing locally here um, more and more opportunities coming our way, even though it is challenging. The 21st century is, is challenging for music. It's challenging for music education. It's challenging for brass bands. It's going to be challenging for Salvation Army brass bands. But there are so many opportunities and so much to be excited about. I think it's really important that um, when you're talking about the vision of the band, you need to be really into what the vision of your church is and making sure that the band aligns with that and can drive that forward as a powerful missional tool. Um, so I really believe that we need to get out and get on the streets. Uh, Salvation Army Band came about because you can't really take a string orchestra outside when it starts raining, but you can take a brass band. So we need to get out, we need to play on the streets. We're trying to do that here. And when we go, we're, we're trying to create a, a lot of noise, a lot of interest so that people come over and then other people from the core are having conversations. And they're having conversations that build relationships because people are not going to come into to church without building relationships with those who are there. Uh, and also we're talking to them about Alpha. We're giving out leaflets for our beginner brass programme. We're inviting people to messy church. And so from the band's uh, ministry in our market, we do each month in sale, which is the only time really the high street is busy in sale. So it's, it's our best opportunity to, to get people outside. We're seeing people come to messy church. We're seeing people learn to play a brass instrument. We're seeing people come to Alpha. We've seen people become adherents. Someone got enrolled as a soldier recently who heard the band, thought, what's that? Came over, had a conversation, got invited to church and came along and there are so many great creative arts in the Salvation Army I'm not for a minute saying that bands are better than another but they have this possibility um, to, to get people on the street and it's great that we have grown very sophisticated in our 150 years and we have great music and I was talking to you about Light of the World a little while ago and that's a wonderful piece of music and we have great art in, in our brass band music but we also need to get our hands dirty and we need to get out on the street and play to people and make sure that the band is supporting the mission of the wider core because if they're not connected, it's not going to work. An inspiring vision and reality there. Thank you so much for sharing that little bit of an insight into what you're doing with a band in sale. So your leadership in Salvation Army banding doesn't just stop there. You've led bands at different Salvation Army summer schools and most recently have been the guest at the Star Lake Music Camp in the US. Is that something that you're passionate about, working with young people in summer schools? Absolutely. I mean, I'm passionate about working with young people. It's what I do every day. Um, and I'm very passionate about, about the gospel. So having the opportunity to share the gospel uh, with young people is, is just perfect, especially in the context of music, which, which I love doing. And uh, I suppose I want to give back what's been given to me. When I went to my first summer school, I was, was quite old, I think it was 15, I went to West Midlands Summer School and uh, we played the light of the world and that's where I, I got saved. And uh, so I want to give back 
um, to, to young people and uh, been fortunate to, I think in, my, in our division here up in, in the Manchester area from about 19, I think I did my first one. And then most summers since, uh, been able to go around different parts of our own territory and, and share a love of music and share a love of faith and a share a love of Salvation Army music with young people. And that's just a wonderful opportunity. And then the opportunity to go to America was, uh, was very unexpected last year. Um, uh, yeah, the people who go to Star Lake tend to be a bit older and a bit greyer than me. So to have the chance to, uh, to go and do that and to take my wife and my daughter with me was, was amazing. And to see the same thing being done, Salvation Army music, but a different culture. Um, even though there's a lot of crossover between Eastern United States and the UK, there are some differences as well and some, some musical cultural differences. And to, to work with that was really fascinating. Um, and just great young people, great staff doing what we do over here in their own way. And it was such an honour to be there and to, to see the, the list of names of people who've been there before and hopefully to, to speak into the lives and realities of, of those young people. And uh, yeah, really an honour of a lifetime to go and do it. So Jonathan, throughout your life and all the different music making opportunities that you've talked about there, how has your faith shaped and impacted the way that you've led your life? Well, I've been very fortunate to come under the influence of so many great, great Christians, um, which I've talked about a bit already. Uh, and that's those people have shaped me. And then in seeing the way that they live their lives, I've wanted to live them in the same way. And so I wanted to know about the, the God that they've served and that they've proclaimed and, and come to know and, and love that God for myself. And my faith is absolutely central to everything I, I do um, professionally, personally within my, my church uh, and uh, is what drives me, drives me each day uh, because I want more people to know about him. And um, I'm fortunate, I think, as a musician that I'm able to uh, proclaim that through music making, but also I try to do that in my everyday life. And I, I get it wrong a lot, uh, but I know I have a forgiving and loving God who's there for me. So my, my faith means everything to me. And, and hopefully that comes out in, in my music making as well. Thank you so much, Jonathan, there for uh, answering those questions. It was really wonderful to hear you talk. But I think it is time to venture into the murky waters of quirky quickfire questions. Oh dear. So we've got some questions here. Hopefully some are fairly standard. You'll know the format now as a regular listener. But some, as the clue in the name suggests, are a little bit more quirky. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Oh, um, changes all the time. Leslie Condon at the moment, we're playing a lot of a lot of his music because it's 40 years since he died, so I would say Leslie Condon. Great choice. Favourite piece of Salvation Army music? Oh, that's just so hard. I would probably say The Light of the World, and if I didn't say The Light of the World, I'd probably say The Kingdom of Triumphant. Nice, covered a couple of bases there. Uh, what household chore do you despise the most? all taking the bins out and it's one of my jobs as well I did it this evening actually but it was only the cardboard which is less less disgusting but yeah the bins a little bit less messy hopefully have you got a favourite symphony Shostakovich 5 it had to be a Shostakovich didn't it it's After got to what be said earlier. <laughs> excellent a great symphony which of Paul's letters do you feel you resonate with the most Romans uh, Romans Romans 12 is my favourite chapter in the Bible so I would say Romans 
as an active vegetarian, as you mentioned earlier, <laughs> uh, what is your top ranked vegetable? Oh, broccoli. I'm going to say broccoli. Good choice. Tender stem or just your regular? I do like a tender stem, actually. I'll say tender stem. Mm. Oh, lovely. Uh, since you've become vegetarian, have you ever accidentally eaten KFC gravy? <laughs> you were present. Yes, I did. I, I was on my way back from celebrating Christmas with the Salvation Army and I rang my wife to tell her that I tried the KFC vegan burger, but it had been a little bit dry, so I had got some gravy and she pointed out to me that KFC gravy would not be vegetarian. So, yes. There's a theme with you and gravy, isn't there? I'm just spotting yeah, it's, it. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely spot on there. <laughs> um, if you could hop on Aladdin's magical carpet and fly to anywhere in the world, where would you set your sights for first? I would go to New Zealand. only because I've never been there and I would love to go. I love the Lord of the Rings and I would love to go to New Zealand one day. So, yeah. And linking on from that question, could you sing the chorus of A Whole New World to us now? Um, I've actually, I've actually listened to that song today. <laughs> it was meant to be. Okay. Um, yes. Okay. A whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. No one to tell us no, or where to go, or say we're only dreaming. There you go. Better than Peter Andre and Jordan. Oh. I am. Um, I got a little bit emotional in that. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I was expecting you to say no. Thank you. I, I apologise to all listeners. No, that was that was beautiful. Uh, have you got a favourite comedy show? Uh, Friends, I'd say. Now, I believe that you're quite an avid cricket fan. Uh, we're currently yes. in the middle of the ashes, and I believe yeah. Australia just tipping the balances. But do you think England can do enough to win? Oh. I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to get it back to 2-all. It's 2-1 at the moment, but we might lose the fifth test. But I, I live in hope. In Ben Stokes, we trust 3-2 to England. Now, final of the quirky quickfire questions. And it's a bit of a trivia one here. Can you name the top five players with the most test runs for England? But for the, each name that you say, you have to say it in a different regional accent. Oh, no, I can't do accents. They're all going to sound the same or highly offensive. OK. Um, Scottish. Alistair Cook. Correct. Australian. Jaru. Correct. Or two Welsh. Graham Gooch. Correct. Mank, Arkid, Alex Stewart. Nice. And one more to go. Maybe Peterson or maybe Boycott. Well, Kevin Peterson's from South Africa, so I might try that. I don't know if it's right, though. And I could try boycott Yorkshire. So, Peterson, give him Peterson. That was terrible. Incorrect, I'm afraid. You're going to have to try another one in another accent. So, Yorkshire. My wife's from Yorkshire. See if I can impersonate my wife. Um, hey, Jeffrey, boycott. That's incorrect, I'm afraid. Oh, according God. to the list. So, we're going to have to have another accent and another Oh, no. Um, I'll do Scouse. David Gower. Correct. Five for five. Very, very good knowledge there, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Now, let's just calm things down a little bit. We don't want to get too excitable. People might be driving. We don't want to cause any accidents. And that takes us on to Fully Score Band Manager 2023. So for those that 
aren't familiar with the band manager format, each guest that we have on will have the chance to nominate two players to join our fantasy band. Once a seat is taken, it cannot be filled again. The choice is getting smaller each episode we go through. Guests can choose players due to their personal influence on our life or just an admiration for them as a player. So, Jonathan, who would your two picks for band manager be and why? So they're both quite sentimental, actually, I suppose. But um, Second Horn, Commissioner Harold Orton, which is my mum's dad, my grandpa. Uh, I, I didn't really know him. He died when I was about two years old. But he was in the, the ISB for the best part of two decades, uh, in the 50s and the 60s. And uh, whilst I never really knew him, it's this connection that we have that we've played in the same band uh, which is really special. I'm told that he was a really, really terrible horn player, uh, but a really good bandsman. He, I think he used to do these kind of uh, recitals or, or readings that he would he would give, uh, which we, we wouldn't have in a concert now, but um, yeah, he used to do those. So, so he would be one on, on second horn and obviously his, his influence that is, is on me through my family, even though I didn't know him that well. Um, and then my second choice uh, would be bass trombone, and that'd be Stephen Williams, who's who's my colleague in the trombone section of the ISB. I met Stephen when I was eight. He was six, and my family moved to Wrexham. On my first day in Wrexham, uh, his parents took me out to the park for the day, and I, I played with Stephen, his younger brother, my younger brother. And we became very good friends. We started to learn to play the trombone at about the same time. We went to the same schools. We played in the same school bands, county bands, county orchestras, North Wales orchestras, Territorial Youth Band, TMS up to we were both studying in Manchester at the same time for a period and then playing in the staff band he joined a couple of months before me uh, and we've also had through that a very a very good friendship uh, so it's quite uh, an amazing thing really that we've followed each other as we have uh, through life all the way to the ISB and on top of that he is one of the all-time great Salvation Army based Ramon players and a, and a wonderful guy so Stephen Williams. Two wonderful picks there. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for those additions to the Fully Scored Band Manager Band. Well, that brings us to the end of our time uh, in the interview, very sadly. But thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us. It really has been a privilege to speak to you and hear some of your thoughts and a little bit about your life. You're very welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to all our listeners who have sent in nominations for the Band Manager Percussion One Seat. We've had nominations for Johnny Whitmore, Andrew Shires, Ashley Durrant, Steve Yalden, Tobias Utasal, to name just a few. But there's been an overall consistent name mentioned, and that is of former Melbourne staff band member Jeff Thomas, for his exemplary role as a percussionist in the band and perfect paradiddles. If you wish to read more of the extended tributes, then you can do so on our Fully Scored Facebook page. The next seat that we're going to be opening up for listeners to vote for is the second baritone chair. We'll put a Facebook post out again within a few days, so have a think about who you might want to nominate for second baritone in the fully scored Band Manager 2023 band. In gratitude, we thank thee, Jonathan Most Dear, for the pearls of wisdom and insights clear. In that interview, your mind sure did swell. Now the spotlight shifts, let a new segment unfurl. With Jonathan, I could have spoken all night, but now we turn to Tawny Hansen's sight. 
a symphony of thoughts he shall unchain on Eric Lysden's masterpiece, None Other Name. Well, Tawny, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored today to do an analysis of an iconic piece of Salvation Army repertoire, Eric Lysden's None Other Name. When did you first get to know this piece? I remember that very well. That was in 1964 when the Hollywood Tabernacle Band visited Copenhagen after they had been in London or England for a tour. And they played it there at the Copenhagen Temple, and that was around midsummer 1964. And I remember very well what impression it did on me. Uh, next time I heard it was 1971 in York, in Britain, in fact. I was in, in Britain for, for a couple of months for, for studying, and um, I was uh, staying with the family of Terry Campsey. And he said, you should go to York for this weekend because the staff band is there. And I combined that with a visit to, to other brass band concerts up in Yorkshire. So I went there and was with the staff band all that Sunday. And the last thing they played was this none other name as a wind-up of a Sunday evening's uh, uh, meeting. And I, that was unforgettable. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. So let's talk a little bit about the history of this piece. Where did the this piece come uh, in Eric Lyson's output? It comes quite late. It was written in 1959 for the Starlake Music Camp. And uh, it, so it was first performed there. And then it was used in the 1962 of the New York Staff Band when they toured written. And they had quite a few pieces by Eric Leitzen, some very fine pieces like Invincible Army, Songs in the Heart, and this None Other Name, which was performed by the New York Staff Band in the Royal Abbott Hall. And could you give us just a brief snapshot as to how Eric Leitzen came to be in uh, New York at that point in time? He was, he was born in Sweden as an officer's child. And uh, his father died, in fact, before he was born, very sadly. His mother, his mother was Irish, but uh, and her, his father was Swedish. She was uh, serving as an officer of the Salvation Army in Sweden to start with, and then in Denmark. So much of the upbringing years of Erik Leidsen was in Copenhagen. And then he came to Stockholm, and lived there with his mom and his uh, sisters. And he was in the Swedish staff band as a very young, between he was 14 and 16 years old, as an E-flat corner player. And then he studied uh, at the Academy of Music in Stockholm. And then he uh, moved to, to America in 1915, I think. And why his, he moved there, I don't really know. Uh, but because I'm not sure there was a, uh, a sort of a work uh, waiting for him there. Great. Thank you for that little bit of uh, history into Eric Lyston's life. I believe you have a particular interest in Eric Lyston's music. What is it about his music in particular that makes it stand out to you? I have uh, heard his music since I was very, very young. My father was a bandmaster. And uh, we listened to his music recorded 
by bands like the Tranos band, the Stockholm 7 band. Uh, we didn't play very much of it when I was very young. My father considered it too, too difficult for our core band then. And then after that, when I started to read scores, it became even more interesting because his scores tells so much when you read it. And when you, you know, when you read a piece and you are going to conduct it or play it, you have great expectations already in advance. Great, that's excellent. Mm -hmm. And actually talking about reading scores, I think now would be a good time to dip into the score for none other name mm -hmm. and go through and see if we can discover a little bit more behind the message of the music. So the piece starts with this carillon sort of building through the band starting in the basses. What could you tell us about this introduction? The introduction is typical Eric Leitchen because he used the effect of bell sounds. He was very much um, into talking about two different sounds from the band, the direct sounds from cornet and trombones with the bells directly, and then the mellow sound with the horns, baritone, euphonium tubas with the bell upwards. Uh, he used that very much, and he used very much uh, muted instrument. So there was three different kind of sounds, which, which he often uh, used uh, against each other. And, and in that starting of, of uh, the piece, which already quote the, the tune already from the start, uh, that is very typical, Eric Leitzen. Mm -hmm. And at section A, we get the first tune used of this selection, The Saviour's Name. How would you describe this treatment of the melody? Yeah, I would call it a sort of a living landscape around the tune. But the tune is always very evident and it's always complete in one line, in all six tunes. He, he never cut the tune he let his, let his progress all the way at, to its end. Section B is quite an unusual bass line here in the music. What would you say about this section and what Eric Leiston is trying to describe and show through the sound world? It's the horns that are play, play, playing the, the tune. And you can see in the bass and the euphoniums, the, those big jumps. When you see that, you think of string instruments of a symphony orchestra. We are playing, make, playing big pizzicato and those the strings can very easily change between the octaves 
This is very difficult to play, to sound like strings, but the effect when the basis of a euphonium can play that is, is great, very effective. And the, the tune in, in, uh, in the soprano cornet, the first cornet, uh, are going against that, they are falling down. And this is also something which Leitzen often use the direction of the different lines in the scores are, are making a sort of a tension uh, around the tune which are in one note and then it goes up one note and then one note. So when you, when you look at that in, in section B, you, it looks very exciting with uh, the chords in the trombones laying quite still and the basses and euphonium who are making those octaves and the soprano and the high chords are going down in, in very smoothly in the line. So this is a this is a, a challenge for the conductor to make that work. And then when you come to two two bars before C, it gets more dramatic. Uh, the first bar at letter C, he start to make a sort of a bridge over to the moderato, which is in fact an, an four bars introduction to next tune. So the next tune, as you just said, enters at letter D. Yeah. Jesus yeah. is the sweetest name I yeah. know. What is the connection between the two tunes and actually the tunes that we'll have subsequently in this music? The connection with every tune lies, thing, I think, in the words. Because all the tunes have a, a lyric, a text, about the name of Jesus. So uh, this is quite a different kind of melody. To it, It's in 4-4. Four, four. The other one was in 6-8. Uh, but it's a, such a smooth, wonderful bridge over to letter D with those four bars to introduction, the, the, the tune at letter D, which when I see it, when I conduct it, when I listen to it, I think it's like a, a string quartet. It's not a, it's not a cornet solo with three more parts it's like a it, it's a quartet and in fact Eric Leidsen played string quartet played second violin in a string quartet at the New York number two core uh, with some Scandinavian friends there who had a complete string quartet and he also arranged music for string quartet and I th also think he composed some music for it Leading on from that idea of string quartets, mm. you could almost hear a pizzicato sort of figure at letter E yeah. as the music changes here. Yeah.
that's a difficult part to conduct. Uh, because when you come to the tune at F, how should you conduct? Should you do it in nine or should you do it in three? Or should you do it in three and then two? Divide it because there is an accelerando in the beginning of the bar and then it slows down. This is, uh, this is also very difficult to conduct and to do it smoothly so it all, it all feels natural for the players. And what is happening harmonically throughout this section to get us to the new key that we see in the fourth bar of letter G? Yeah, he, he moves stepwise all the time. And, and uh, that's made it that's created a sort of a, um, excitement in it. And it gets stepwise. And then when we come, over to come to letter G, suddenly you have 6, 8 and straight to 4. Uh, which which is a sort of a, when you reach there, you feel that this modulation, which is continuing, you get you get at at home in a way. You feel I'm I'm ready now. I'm 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 got I'm ready for the for the rest of the piece for the continuation of the piece. takes us to letter H, where we have our fourth tune, I believe. He's a lily of the valley. How would you describe this section going through? Uh, in my own score, I have written, be positive. Because it starts a sort of a lighter pace of the music. The euphonium starts with this tune and then it suddenly changed in, 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 in the key after four, four bars. He lifts up the melody. And then those four bars at letter I is a sort of relaxation. And he uses, uses a motif which comes from two bars before letter I. There's a motive of four notes. And those four notes is a motive he uses very much. You can say that all, all bridges between the songs. He also uses motives, small, small parts of the tunes which he has used already. It's a very clever uh, way of, of using the, the motives. So that takes us through quite seamlessly with that little ostinato to section K, where we have our next tune, St Agnes, associated with the words, Jesus, the very thought of thee. How is this treatment of the tune explored different to the treatment to the tunes that we've already had? The score says con calore. It creates a very tensed uh, sound very positively because the E-flat bass tuba plays the tune in a high register 
So the mood of the music changes quite dramatically where we get to letter L. What happens here looking at the score? Yeah, it started, it's in 3-4, but I always feel like a, a, a slow festival march, a sort of a march in 3-4. Very, very skillfully made by him, because, because of those muted trombones, it's a sort of a signal, and the bass plays in a sort of a, a marching style, and the timps, and then that, the tune comes in the horns and then in the trombones and then this signal from the trombones comes in the low corners later on until the tune in full comes out. the last tune that we see in this selection, yeah. uh, Diadem, All Hail the Power of Gigi's Name. And it's quite a magnificent treatment of the melody, isn't it? Yeah, you really can say that. It's, it's fantastic how, how the intents increase more and more. And you are, as a listener, on your toes in a way when you listen to it because you are, you are thinking what is going to happen more and more. There is very much of excitement in, in that. And I think the euphonium part is a very important uh, part of this. I sort of expectations in that and then that continues all the time uh, in the tune, the funeral part, and then the basses as well. So the drama goes on more and more. And then when you come to letter P, he changed the key, and then there is more expectation. You are getting up on a higher ground in a way, and the trombones gives a sort of a signals again with this so so and then it just just uh, it magnifies in a way i think uh, the whole thing so at letter q as a conductor you you must you must behave yourself and not not be overwhelmed you must and and, and also the band must keep it in in order because there's so much of details.
letter S, the music cranks up the tempo once again uh, and continues all the way through to T to accelerate uh, till we get to this Vivace section. Yeah. How would you describe this uh, climax of the music? Uh, this is the first time in the piece which you don't find any of the tunes. So this this coda, I call it the coda, uh, is a sort of a jubiloso, uh, sort of uh, exuberance over the lyrics of all the tunes, the truth in the words. There's no other name which is so strong. So this is sort of a jubiloso. And it's, I think it's a fantastic coda of a piece. And just finally, can you talk us through the, the very ending of the piece? We get the Largo. How does uh, Eric Larson finish off this piece so successfully? The, the chords come uh, on the second beat in the fourth and third bars from the end. Uh, but before that, you have this very positive and very excited ta and then comes the chords, and then it comes three times. Uh, the feeling is victory, in a way. Thank you for taking us on that journey through the score. Just one final question for you. Out of all the recordings and performances that you've heard of this piece, have you got a favourite or one that particularly stands out for you? <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't remember how many have I heard, but of course the 1963 recordings with the staff band under um, Colonel Adams has been a model for for uh, for me since I was a young young man young, young, when I started to conduct. And in fact, Bernard Adams made one recording with the Stockholm Seven Band on the record course. This this man Leitzen, and uh, I think that's the two I know best, and and they are sort of a favourites for me. Bernard Adams as a conductor. Uh, is a model to follow for me. His use of tempo and balance for band was always what I, I listened after. And his way to create the sound of an international staff band and also how he created the sound with Up and Over Songsters. Uh, that has been a, a model for me to follow. But of course, you must be your own as a conductor. You can't imitate another. But both his recordings, I think, I like especially well. Fantastic. Well, Tony, thank you so much for that insight into the music and also a little bit of an insight into the life of Eric Lyston there. And hopefully we'll get to hear from you again at some point. But thank you for joining us on Fully Scored. Thank you very much. So it was a privilege and a, and a challenge for me to do this. Uh, I'm a great admirer of, of Eric Lyston and, 
and order him very much. Thank you. For those interested, the excerpts used in that analysis were taken from the Invincible Army, the ISBCD recorded in 1989, conducted by Ray Bowes. With gratitude we extend our heartfelt praise to Tawny, whose words did wisdom raise. With precious time he shared his heart, a plethora of insights he did impart. Now as the winds of change do blow, onward to Arid Island our ship does row. In Parkhouse, our guest of honour here, to choose an album that he holds dear. Ian's footsteps on the golden sand, in search of an album of a band, to pick one that stirs his heart, a timeless journey, a work of art. Well, I'm delighted today to be joined by Ian Parkhouse. Ian, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Matthew. Yeah, really good. Fantastic. It's great to have you join us on Arid Island. Uh, We're going to find out if you, uh, well, when you're stuck on this island, what album you brought with you and why in a second. But I thought it'd be nice to get to know you a little bit first. So I'm sure many people know that you are the first baritone player in the International Staff Band. Not the first baritone, but... First baritone at the moment, just to clear that up. <laughs> How long have you been in the band for? Uh, this is my 21st year. So, yeah, wow. 20, just over 20 years, yeah. Amazing. You must have seen and done some amazing things for the band over that time. Uh, yeah, I, I feel really lucky. Um, uh, quite a few different tours. Um, America and Canada was was within a year of me joining, which was, which was a brilliant experience. Um, but yeah, Australia uh, in there as well, and a couple of old orchard beaches and uh, uh, Europe and what have you. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of great highlights. Amazing. Although this isn't the only band you've done old orchard beach with, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, that was a, that was a weird one. Uh, just a, an out of the blue uh, text from uh, Derek Lance over there in, in New York uh, to say, "Can you come and help us out?" Uh, last summer. So yeah, that was that was a great experience as well. Yeah, fantastic. Good I'm bunch back. of guys. Excellent. And back on home soil, if you, I had to press you for a highlight with a staff band, an occasion that you'll never forget, could you pick one? Uh, it, it would have to be ISB 120. Um, f- lots of different um, real highlights and, and, and huge memories. Uh, seeing all the bands in, in the, the Royal Albert Hall um, w- was, yeah, kind of almost like a dream come true. It's one of those, you know. Uh, this could never happen, could it? And, and it did, kind of thing. Mm. Um, uh, here in the Japan staff band, that was that was a pretty special moment. Uh, I remember uh, that we were the band before their their item, and I remember running out from uh, backstage to, to get into our box um, to make sure I was there for uh, to hear them. And, and yeah, what what a moment that was. Um, and funny enough, although though I got sort of lumbered with with being the uh, the the colour sergeant as such actually marching down the mall that that weekend uh, right at the front seeing the crowds 
um, down the mall and at the palace and, and hearing those sort of seven staff bands behind you that was that was definitely quite a moment so yeah yeah amazing memory thank yeah. you for sharing that so as much as I'm sure you would love it uh, but playing the baritone isn't a full-time profession so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what you do for work um, yeah I've, I've, uh, I've spent the last 34 years in, in financial services so I'm, I'm uh, an independent financial advisor um, sort of run my own business uh, for, for a number of years and uh, actually hoping to retire at the end of this year funny enough so uh, having uh, I'm done sort of 34 years of that um, and, and previously was was in the uh, in a uh, military music um, mm. so uh, served in the guards band uh, straight after school so uh, yeah it's been a it's been a good fulfilling uh, working life definitely and did you enjoy your time serving in the military is that what gave you one of your loves for music making I, I loved it yeah it was um, without getting too too sort of dull and boring about it in those days you, you couldn't go and study the euphonium uh, at a college basically um, you, you had to really either play a trombone or a tuba and I actually auditioned at, at both Trinity and the Royal Academy on tuba um, but you had euphonium was my second instrument and, and some uh, bright spark definitely spotted that that was my, that was my preferred instrument and he said if, if that's your preferred instrument you know you, the best thing you could do is, is go and join a military band uh, so that's what I did um, so yeah um, really I suppose if I had my time again I would love to have gone to college and, and, and you know studied euphonium uh, in the way that you can now um, but that said I don't regret anything of, of my, my time in the guards it was it was fantastic Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing that. So that brings us on to the all-important question. You're deserted and stuck on an arid island, and you can take with you but one album. What would that album be, and why? Uh, Matthew, this is this is a terrible thing to ask me. Um, a bando um, from a very early age. My my dad um, it was a a, a, a core officer, and uh, had army music on pretty much the whole time. So I was sort of fair. Uh, um, yeah, surrounded by it from an early age, uh, and it, it's just so difficult to to say not this one, not that one, um, because there are there are quite a few albums that I I remember growing up to. Um, the seventy fifth anniversary of the staff band was was probably the first record I really got into. I, I wore it. Uh, literally wore it out uh, I can remember exactly where the jumps are on the record um, for Call of the Righteous uh, trying, to, trying to play the tin part and the, and the side run part uh, on my biscuit tin um, as a, I don't know what, how old I was 8 or 9 um, so, so that, that would definitely be in the running um, you know, at the first version of, of uh, Call of the Righteous uh, in there and Ian Hankey playing um, uh, Eternal Quest uh, was was a, a you know a great a recollection as well. Um, Brass International was another album that again I, I played and played and played. Uh, I wasn't present at whatever it was 1968, but that was the first uh, the, the premiere of the present age. Um, still my favourite piece of music. Um, but other things, my strength, my tower was on there. Um, Canadian folk songs was on there, and again I I, I wore that record out. Um, but that's not the one either. Um, uh, uh, core band-wise, uh, Enfield's Kaleidoscope is still 
to me, one of the most outstanding LPs. Um, just just phenomenal playing. Uh, again, Call of the Righteous featured, but Kaleidoscope uh, and, and Resurgum uh, all featured on there. Uh, just brilliant playing. Um, but the actual album I'm going to go for, um, perhaps on a, on a slightly... Um, what's the word, controversial uh, uh, choice, I guess, is um, Sounds of Joy uh, by the Canadian staff band. Uh, this was the early 90s when Brian Burdett had the band and I just thought they were fantastic. They, they were a, a, a rattling good band at that time. Uh, he was a great band trainer. Uh, and just the album itself just, just was a great overall band programme. You know, a, a, a great March Salvation song in it. Um, uh, oh, the trombone solo, um, Bluebells of Scotland, Clarence White, uh, just phenomenal. Uh, a good friend of mine who's sadly no longer with us, David uh, Robertson, played uh, Jubilance. Um, but Let There Be Praise is on there. Um, an original version of the um, Prince Thought Variations, uh, Ken Downey, fantastic. And, and again, um, Broughton's music in his joyful service, which I've always really loved. Um, so, yeah, just for overall a good good mix of everything, that's going to be the one that's uh, I take with me. Fantastic and a great choice. Thank you so much, Ian, for giving up your time to speak with us, and hopefully we'll hear from you again at some point in the future. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Ian, for the wondrous choice, a gift of music that does rejoice. With a cheer and utmost applaud, it's time to announce the winner of Sparsely Scored. Sparsely Scored. Well, the time has come. We finally have a winner of Sparsely Scored. Congratulations to the legend that is Derek Kane for correctly guessing what the EPSA is and being crowned Sparsely Scored World Champion 2023. We'll reveal in next month's episode what the piece is, so to anyone who has the answer on the tip of your tongue, here's your one last chance to let us know. Here's a full band recording of the EPSA. Additional clues can also be found in the opening and closing music of this episode too. Here it is again. We'll be back in September with a brand new sparsely scored excerpt for you to guess. And who knows, we might even go a little bit easier this time. Now, over to Jonathan for his innings in the band mastermind hot seat. Hopefully he's not too stumped by the questions. Well, Jonathan, thank you once again for joining us on Fully Scored, and it's your time to sit in the hottest seat in the entire universe, the band mastermind hot seat. How nervous are you on the scale of 1 to Z? I'm off the charts, Matthew. I'm, pe- I'm absolutely petrified. I, I wasn't sure if it was your camera shaking or you. I'm not sure <laughs> it's me, it's is. me. I'm shaking okay. here. I'm shaking here. So for those that aren't familiar with the Band Mastermind format, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many brass band trivia questions as you can. If you don't know the answers, you can pass. We'll go through any questions that you don't get right. 
Unless it is a perfect scorecard at the end. So, Jonathan Evans, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I shall do my best. Then your time starts now. Can you name one of the five choruses used in James Wright's Fantasia for Children? No, pass. Okay, which Norfolk town was Leslie Condon evacuated to during the Blitz? Fakenham. Correct. Who composed Dance Beat? Paul Sharman. Correct. Which one of these tracks does not appear on the album The ISB at Abbey Road? The Firing Line, The Great Physician or Steadily Onward? Steadily Onward. Correct. What tone poem is number 302 in the festival series? Pass. Okay. Uh, Who is the assistant musical director of the Chicago Staff Band? Tom Hampton. Correct. Can you name the only festival march by Emil Soderstrom to be published in the festival series? Oh, um, the one about time. Um, oh, the hours. Um, pass. Okay, there are three classical transcriptions published in the Triumphonic Collection. Can you name one of them? Pass. Okay, Uh, what year was the International Staff Band formed? 1891. Correct, and that is the end of your time, I'm afraid. So that gives you a grand score of five, which is our highest of the season so far, and an excellent score for Band Mastermind. Well done, Jonathan. So just to go through the answers of the ones that you didn't quite get, and one of them you will absolutely kick yourself for, because it was on the tip of your tongue. The five choruses used in James Wright's Fantasia for Children are The Wise Man man Built His House Upon the Rock, Root Them Out, Get Them Gone, Be Careful Little Hands What You Do, Building Up the Temple, and I Don't Want to March with the Infantry. I'm going to have to go listen to that. I don't know it. Oh, so cracker. Um... The tone poem that is number 302 in the festival series is Resurgum. Um, now, this is one you're going to kick yourself for. The only festival march published in the festival series by Emile Soderstrom is March of the Hours. You had March, you had Hours. Oh, so. did I say the Hours or something? Oh. Yeah, it wasn't quite close enough, I'm afraid. Uh, there are three classical transcriptions published in the Triumphonic Collection. They are also Sprat Zarathustra. My pronunciation is dreadful there. Uh, Holst's first suite in E-flat and Bach's Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. Pretty good selection. Well, once again, a great score there that will put you fairly high up the Band Mastermind scorecard. Um, And thank you again so much for giving up your time to join us. You're welcome, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. As twilight's veil begins to gently fall, we bid farewell to you one and all. But before we part, our gratitude we send. In verses woven, our thanks we do extend. To our trio of guests, a heartfelt cheer. Jonathan, Tawny and Ian, so sincere. Your time and gifts you freely share. Your reward in heaven will certainly be there. To Simon Gash, our producer wise, whose skilful hands did orchestrate and devise this episode's journey, a tapestry spun, with care and passion, a masterpiece done. 
to Wobplay, we give our cheer for hosting this podcast that we hold dear. With melodies that stir the soul, an associated playlist you do control. To the band nerds, the purveyors of trivia, who spark our curiosity, a joyful mania. With band masterminds challenge, they impart fear for guests who are faint of heart. And lastly, to you, our listeners dear, whose presence and support we do hold near. With open hearts, you tuned in to stay. Until next episode, it's time to be on your way. Though time is fleeting at the speed of light, in solitude we say goodnight, as melodies linger and memories stay. In the realm of this podcast, we'll meet again someday. Goodbye, and God bless. Thank you.